This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. We're there giving you the opportunity now. We're getting to the time of year court where people want to get out of the house a little bit more. We've been uh, we've been inside. You might have a little cabin fever. So get out to Cellar Z on West Burnside and enjoy one of the f- incredible tasting events that Zupan's offers. February 22nd, they've got Wines of Portugal. February 26th, for you beer lovers, Beer 101. And then March 6th, Italian Wines. That's going to be fantastic. And of course, don't forget, things always taking place at your local Zupan's, and by that I mean some great sales. Uh, Boneless Pork Chops from Carlton Farms, currently on sale through the end of the month, Chris, for only $4.99 a pound. You're actually saving, that's like 50% off because they normally double that. So you take advantage of that or do something we've always talked about, which is uh, take advantage of their ready to cook dinners. They've got these really great Zupan's house made chicken Parmesan, which is just delicious. Uh, You can uh, simply top the chicken with tomato sauce and cheese, bake at 400 degrees and you're good to go. They've got all the instructions available for you. That's what I like. Easy. And no cleanup. Well, very little cleanup anyway. Right. uh, So you'll find all that at Zupan's. We have three locations for you to enjoy. Uh, Lake Oswego, McAdam, and West Burnside. And there's one other place that you need to go. That would be Zupan's.com. Right, here it is time once again it is portland's food scene podcast it's right at the fork with your host chris angeles from portland food adventures and i'm co-host court johnson hi co-host court johnson how are you this morning i'm well in fact uh, that's the uh the title i have not only on this podcast but i make my family call me co-host as well <laughs> do you have a little name card at the dinner table co-host yep, little, with a little, little fake uh, mic name card yeah or maybe name tags i walk around yeah. in the house oh yeah well that makes you feel better um, sure well you're a great co-host and i appreciate it whether you're identified as such or not so thank you thank you you know and uh thank you for being with us, I cannot believe we're in our ninth year. I mention that all the time, but it's just, it's beyond me that we've been doing this for nine years. And then I thought about it. You know, we have interspersed a lot of, in the early days, we did the, um, you know, best of lists. And what did we call it? I can't even remember. This is the problem. We had those short features, which we called... Um, sound bites. Sound, sound bites. bites. Yeah. Right. So we yeah. had sound bites. So we interspersed those. And we, of course, do a um, an archival episode uh, 12 times a year. Um, and But just to be in the th- mid-300s, I was thinking about it yesterday, all... What that takes to do 300 interviews, like if you sat down and did them all at one time, that would be sure. that would be interesting. You could get to the moon, but um, no, it's a lot. And so um, we really appreciate it when you take it in, when you take them in small bites, no pun intended. It's pretty awesome to spend an hour with somebody and get to know them better. And of course, I can either. You know, I can guide the interview, and sometimes I, I think I do a better job with it than others. And so, um, 
you know, I really enjoy getting to know people I normally wouldn't get to know. And I say often during the interview, one of the things I love about this podcast is most all of the people that are on the podcast aren't people I hang out with and get would get the opportunity to spend an hour with uh, either way. So it's great. And that's the case with this week's episode with Corey Carmen of Carmen Ranch um, outside of Wallawa or in Wallawa County. I've been hearing about her for years. I've stopped by the ranch, uh, and I've certainly enjoyed Carmen Ranch's products, uh, grass-fed beef that's available at restaurants uh, around Portland, and you can buy it at some markets, and also buy direct from Carmen Ranch. So I have enjoyed that, and I, I didn't I didn't know Corey before this interview, and um, uh, now I do get a little bit more knowledge. You know, I found our conversation on the business of ranching to be interesting enough so that I didn't foray into the personal, her personal life very much, but what we find out is she, she's a mom and been running that business, um, the family business, four-generation business for quite a while, and, uh, and we talk mostly about where they are now with some of their practices and how they've grown and how they expect to grow. So at the end of the interview, this happens sometimes. Uh, we get there. I enjoyed the conversation. I realized I didn't really find out much about her personal life, which is kind of what this podcast is all about. But I also like hearing, I think listeners like to hear about the business of food. And this is not a restaurant. So it, what happens, like the Oregon Crab Commission a week ago, what happens with these interviews, because they're not restaurants, is I tend to stay a little bit more business focused than I am personally. So, um, so anyway, that's this interview with, uh, Corey Carmen. I, um, we talk a little bit about where to go in Wallawa and I don't think we got a lot back. And that's probably a function of how difficult it is to run a restaurant or a food service hospitality in a place where it's tourists only go a couple of months a year. So, um, so there was that too, but I really enjoyed hearing about, um, regeneration now and what they're doing along those lines and the certification process that's going on. So they can't just call it something and have it mean nothing. Things mean something now. So words mean something. And, uh, what, we're, what we're seeing is, um, an opportunity to put, um, some beef behind the statements. And that's what we're, we talk about here, uh, with Corey Carmen. And I appreciate her taking the time with us. I know she's busy and the originally scheduled date for recording the podcast we put off to try to allow her to nurse a cold a little bit. And, uh, so that was great. And, um, and therefore this morning I found myself with a cold myself. So you can transmit perhaps a cold digitally on this podcast. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. 
Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. And by... In Oregon, flavor is not just about food, but about character, freshness, and sustaining this beautiful place. Our fishermen continue to work hard to bring that flavor to all families who care about good food and healthy eating. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. Thank you, Corey Carmen, for visiting with us out there. Do I see snow in the background? I mean, that's not unusual for there. That's going to happen. Yes, you do see snow in the background. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's our pleasure. I have, you know, I've heard about you for years. I visited your ranch. I don't think I looked you up when I was out there, but I stopped in. And uh, I love where you live. It's fantastic. I lived in Portland for many years and, you know, had discovered all the wonders of Oregon. And uh, then one day I find myself out in Wallowa County and I thought, holy shit, nobody told me about this for a while. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so it's it's nice to meet you. You are. Uh, I would imagine that you're. I don't. I don't. I don't think the word celebrity, but everybody knows who you are out there, right? I mean, you're a big deal out in Wallowa County. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that's true. I think uh, my family's been around for a long time, and. Uh, Certainly, some people are are aware of Carmen Ranch, and but it's interesting. Um, here, I'm just kind of a mom with kids and do my thing, and uh, in, and then in Portland, people know me for the meat company and and for the ranch. So it's almost like this this funny little double life I live. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Portland pays attention to food, and so that's how you you would be in the news and people would know what you're doing and you're in the news now with some of the new practices that you've been certified as uh as um as having practiced that's that grammar is terrible but at any rate um so the family's been around for years in terms of uh ranches and farmers or ranchers out there where does Carmen Ranch fit in in terms of largesse? And then I want you to talk a little bit about how many heads you have and how many different ranches you're involved with, because I don't think it started that way years ago. You had to expand. Right. So we're a relatively small operation. Historically, my family was in the registered cattle business. Um, so we sort of raised breeding stock. And when I came back, I continued doing that for a little while, but I was really interested in in following the life cycle of a cattle all the way to harvest and to the consumer. I've always loved food and had an interest in the culinary side of the business, so I thought this would be a good opportunity. 
And in the in the initial years, I mean, I'd never even had grass-fed beef when we started. My uncle was mortified. Um, he thought grain-fed beef was so much better. He couldn't believe I was going to try to finish cattle on grass. How long ago was how long ago was that where there was wasn't even a thought? Uh, you know that was twenty years ago that I that I first came home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, you no, were no, on we're, a nice track there. Well, uh, um, so our ranch is relatively small, especially by by contrast to a lot of ranches in the kind of inland west. And I started out first figuring out how to raise grass-fed beef, what it was all about, how it tasted, what the cuts. I spent a lot of time in the butcher shop in those early years learning all the different cuts. And I was fortunate in the sense that we had always harvested animals from the ranch and um, had a whole cow in our freezer. So I was familiar with the different cuts, but uh, not familiar enough to represent them or think about how to merchandise them or any of those things. So it was a it was a slow learning curve, and then I partnered with another local family, and uh, the woman was uh, sort of my same age, also a fourth generation rancher, and they had a much larger ranch. And so Jill McLaren is her name, and we're still friends um, and still keep in touch. But she was an integral part of those early years, and we combined animals from both of our herds to meet the growing demand, and then it just kept inching along and these days we're a group of nine producers family ranches um, in most of us in Oregon but also in Washington State and a few in Montana and we all work together Um, it's actually it's really fun the more people I've included in the business the higher the quality has become uh, the more flexible we've become the more we've learned from each other so it's definitely started out with this notion of actually trying to make my own family ranch work, but now uh, I, it's, it's more successful, it's more resilient, and it's just more fun to have this group of producers all working together. And how long has it been since you've had this, uh, the group? So in 2017, I took on some investment money from a couple of really uh, aligned impact investors that wanted to see a regional grass-fed company and what we what we could accomplish. And so they invested in the company with really low expectations. You know, they knew this wasn't going to be some big profit uh, venture, but they they wanted to see what we could accomplish in terms of impacting the land, getting high-quality meat into the marketplace. And so that was a turning point for us when we went from a seasonal fresh program, um, which we had done before. We only harvested cattle from Malawa County. And so we only had fresh meat available from May until October. And and then we would have certain customers that would move to frozen beef. So OHSU has always been one of our huge supporters almost from day one. And they would just start using frozen beef during the off season. Um, and then in 2017, we, we transitioned and started working with retailers in Portland and uh, needed to have a year-round fresh program. And so that's when involving all these other producers became critical because everybody had a little bit different pasture rotation, um, worked at different elevations. And so we could piece together a fresh program year-round and still maintain the quality. Um. Well, that's exciting. So that's not really a long time, correct? I mean, that's, I mean, no. in the, how long is the, the, you said fourth generation. So the ranch has been around for a long time. So this is, 
you know, a very different period than uh, than you've experienced before. Yeah, I think that, uh, so the ranch has been around for over 100 years, and I think that each generation has a sort of responsibility for understanding best practices, um, you know, integrating the, the insights and knowledge that we've made, and we've all done it a little differently, and I can look back at uh, photographs in the early 1900s, and we were plowing up native prairie, and now you know, a hundred years later, I'm seeding it back down. <laughs> it's just, uh, everybody, everybody does their best, but, um, times change. Our understanding changes, consumer demand changes. And, and I think we each have to be willing to, uh, both have a little humility, <laughs> um, and do our best. Well, I would imagine technology plays a big part of, in that because obviously you've got access to technology you didn't have before. And then, you know, Part, putting your pieces together with other ranches, communication is important. I mean, if that if this was back in 1950, people would be picking up landlines and talking to each other, and it wouldn't be, I, I think it would probably be a lot more difficult to do the types of things you're doing today than it would have years ago. And I'm curious, uh, I, I don't, I, I assume you agree with that, but I'm curious as to what you see coming down the pike in the next 20 years, because technology is advancing so rapidly and how it might affect your business and your ability to um, expand your sustainable and your your best practices um, further yeah it's a it's a great question and I think there are technology and innovation both on the production side as well as on the sort of distribution and fulfillment side and I I think I have a little less insight into the distribution and fulfillment side. But on the production side, one of the things that we've been able to do with technology is monitor soil health. And, you know, I think for a long time we understood soil as a kind of lifeless substrate that might have some minerals in it. and now we understand it as this like incredibly important biological entity that is the root of nutrition, that is the root of flavor. And that understanding is, is backed by the fact that we can now look at the different species of microbes in the soil and monitor those over time. And so we, we used to look at rangeland health just through visual observation. Um, we would look at species diversity. We'd look at water, you know, how quickly the water went into the ground if the soil was covered. And we still look at those indicators, but now we can back that up and look at, you know, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide respiration rates. We can look at all sorts of more sophisticated indicators of what's happening at the soil level. And my, my guess is that we will continue to see more sophisticated and more frequent measurements because right now we still have to go out and collect a lot of soil data by hand, but uh, the technology is shifting really quickly. And that will impact um, things like carbon markets. So one thing that well-managed soils do is they actually sequester carbon and hold more water. And so as People are increasingly looking at ways to impact climate, especially through their food choices. Ranching, uh, livestock all have a big role that can either be positive or negative. So that's, that's the technology that I'm excited about is positioning groups like ours to be sort of uh, champions in 
soil health in raising food in a way that has a positive impact on climate as opposed to a detrimental one, which is where we're sort of always placed in the beef world. I was going to say, that's generally from what I see, you know, the cattle get the blame for a lot. And so um, uh, I would imagine, you know, and the the dichotomy there is they get a blame they they get blamed for a lot, but they're also consumed a lot. People people love it, and uh, it's very important. Your so your practices uh, recently have uh, allowed you to certify, or you've now j- j- uh, gained the certification of Regenified. Can you explain that and how that impacts you as a business, and then also how it impacts you know our consumers. Um, with flavor and and quality of product. Yeah. So we, when I first started, we had this notion of, you know, how can you raise cattle in a, in a sustainable way? How can you manage livestock in a way that doesn't degrade the land? And what we've, what's happened since then is um, we sort of increasingly recognize that in general, our agricultural system is pretty extractive. We till, we um, rely on a lot of inputs to keep the soil productive. And the, the result has been that the quality of our food has degraded over time. And so, uh, and it's become less resilient. You know, we've, we're more impacted by drought and flood. And there are some farmers that um, early, you know, in the past, call it 20 or 30 years, uh, as droughts have come through, there are certain farmers that have stood out as exceptions, people that were less impacted by the drought. And those farmers have become sort of the spokespeople for this new movement around regenerative agriculture. And, and Gabe Brown is one of the, the most notable ones. And um, I've known Gabe for a while and he's come out to the ranch a couple times. He's spoken to our producer group. He's just an, an incredible man, who um, was one of the one of the people that was not only an uh, educator to other farmers, but also um, kind of outlined some of the principles of soil health. So our group has been working with those principles, and. Um, one of our goals has been to continue to improve the soil health of our own ranches. And we've made this claim for a while, and we have a lot of anecdotal evidence, but we were really challenged by some of our customers that if you're doing this work, uh, you need a verification. You know, everybody can say they're quote-unquote regenerative, but without data and without a third party coming in and verifying that, you know, what does it really mean? And so we started looking for opportunities to get uh, verification. And I called Gabe and asked him because I knew that he was actually part of creating a certifying body. And he always claims, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do this, but my life work has been around promoting regenerative practices. And if those practices are greenwashed, then it undermines everything I believe in and all the people that are doing it well. So he and his partner, Alan Williams, also a, an incredible thought leader in regenerative ag, um, started this third party called Regenified. And the man who wrote the standards, a guy named Doug Peterson, came out and we uh, 
we went through every ranch. We wrote farm plans. We did soil data. He did on-site audits. And it was a tough process. I mean, we, we knew we were doing well, but Doug challenged us in our practices. Um, he showed us ways that we could all improve. So overall, it was challenging. It was positive. Um, people were frustrated, um, which is always good. It means you're getting pushed. And um, at the end of the day, we were, it took about a year to get through all of the different audits and to get our soil tests back and update our farm plans. But at the end of the day, we were verified as Regenified, the first meat company in the country to get that designation. Congratulations. Thanks. And part of the process or part of uh, maintaining the verification and being able to use their seal is that every three years we have to move up. So there's a, it's a five-tiered system, and every three years we have to move up. So uh, the work is not over. So where do you, what's the next tier? What do you have to do to accomplish the next tier? How difficult are these things? And... Uh, you know, are you are you in the process of working on that now, or are you resting on your laurels for just a little bit? <laughs> That's a good question. So the tiers are divided in um, by how much of the land under management is fully in regenerative practices, and so the uh, the initial tier is is I mean it's designed so that anybody can can get on to this um, trajectory of being regenerative. And so the tier one, you don't get to use the seal at that tier, but any, any farmer, any rancher can come in at that initial tier, get baseline soil data and an audit, and then they have a couple years to move up and you know, be able to use the, the seal. And then as, they, as more acres are strictly regenerative, they keep moving up. And so tier five is uh, over... It's the final tier, and it's over 80% of the land under management has to be in fully regenerative practices. So we're currently at tier three. So we just have to keep thinking about um, different acres within our producer group that could shift. Um, We work with some row crop farmers, and so they're looking at how can they uh, reduce tillage even more than they already have. Um, We're working with some hay farmers, and and hay is a very challenging crop to be regenerative because it's harvested and removed from the land. So th- as, as we look ahead, there are some big challenges. And so even though we're doing, uh, these farmers are doing a, a really great job, uh, it's not just being sustainable, right? You have to actually demonstrate that you're making the land better, and that's a high bar in certain farming systems. So we are, we are definitely working on it. We're looking at different trials, um, we're looking at different equipment, but every farmer has sort of their, and rancher to that degree, has sort of their own unique ecosystem that they work in, which is why our group is so cool, but it means that everybody has a slightly different challenge that they have to tackle to keep moving forward. And so um, some of this comes from within, right? This is something you feel very strongly about, that you know, you want to look in the mirror in the morning and realize I'm doing the best I can with the land. That's, you know, this is an important thing. And then there's some, there's a side that's consumer focused, right? There are some consumers who care and some who probably, probably aren't looking. And they're just, do you, do you keep track of how important it is for you from a marketing standpoint 
to have this certification. Um, and I would imagine that is a little different in Oregon than it might be in some other places. Because I think for the most part, and maybe in different regions, people are more aware and conscious of what they're putting in their bodies and what they're serving their children. Um, I'm, I, I just don't know, you know how many people actually, if you have a, a grip on what this really means in terms of your growth. I don't. And, and I will say I'm a horrible marketer. Uh, um, we have That's been, why you have a PR firm. <laughs> we have been, um, yeah, and it's been super, super fun to have those guys help us. It's the first time we've ever had any sort of really professional marketing help. And um, I, I guess a couple things. We have a core group of customers that order directly from us, and they either order through the CowShare program or the PigShare program or um, through our direct-to-consumer website where they might pick out certain cuts. And it's not a big group, but they've been with us for a really long time, and I know many of them at this point. Some people have ordered from us for 15-plus years every year uh, regularly uh, for, for the CowShare for their freezer. So I I know that group and those guys come to us for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes people have had, say, a personal health crisis that has prompted them to really start paying attention to the nutrition of the food they're eating. Some people are uh, very concerned about animal welfare and it's a priority for them. And so the on-farm harvest that we're able to do with the cowshare program is critical. And, and, you know, the list sort of goes on and on. so, but that group is small because we haven't, it's always been word of mouth. It's always been focused in Portland. We have a few customers in Seattle. And then our, the group that really moves the volume for us is, is buyers. So food service buyers, retail buyers, chefs, right? And, and they have a very challenging job of trying to represent in a really small window of time, represent what's different about our program versus what consumers may see out there. So I have a little more insight into to the challenges that those guys have in, in running their business models that are already low margin and trying to take a higher cost item like ours and, and push it through. Um, and I know that this verification and having the seal was critical to a lot of those guys because it helps them wash through other claims and um, you know just some confusion in the marketplace. Yeah, I would imagine it's just so easy to make a claim and say all natural mm-hmm. or I mean that for years we've been noticing that so it's good that you have certification. Let's take a break now to go um, A little bit west, and a message from one of our sponsors, the Oregon Dungeness Crab Commission. And we'll come right back to speak a little bit longer with Corey Carmen of Carmen Ranch. Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and talk about Oregon Dungeness Crab. It's a favorite dish at holiday gatherings, special occasions, or just when you're in the mood for the sweet, delicate deliciousness you can only get from Oregon's tastiest crustacean. It's harvested sustainably from Oregon's cold, clean coastal waters and is available now at your favorite seafood retailer or restaurant. Oregon Dungeness serves up 
equally as an appetizer or an entree and lends itself to both down home and white tablecloth cuisine. And it's also as nutritious as it is tasty. We know it's tasty. A three ounce portion of cooked meat has 19 grams of protein and contains important minerals and amino acids. It's low in both fat and calories as well as cholesterol and carbohydrates. That's important to me. Yeah. And rest assured, the fishermen are not just delivering a delicious and healthy product. They're also taking care of natural resources for future generations. Visit OregonDungeness.org for information on preparing your favorite crab dish and learning more about the fleet. So go ahead and crack the mystique. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. So we're back with Corey Carmen of Carmen Ranch. Uh, so awesome to have you here. Sunny days on each side of Oregon right now. I'm speaking to you from Manzanita, and you are out in Wallowa County. Where exactly are you? I forgot. I get all confused with all the different towns out there. It's not Lostine, is it? No, we're right outside of Wallowa. Oh, the ta- the city of Lo- or the town of Wallowa. Yeah, exactly. So how is how has that changed over the years? Um, you know, it's a rural area, and it's not, it's not like Bend. Joseph isn't growing like Bend is, but maybe it is, and I'm not aware of it. It's a good question. Um, it hasn't changed a lot, is the, is the whole truth. <laughs> um, and, and we did see a lot of growth in the, call it early 2000s, um, but that really slowed down. And then it picked up again during COVID when um, housing was really hard to come by as people were trying to get out of the city. But even that is, has shifted again. So it, it hasn't changed a ton. Um, the population, I think, continues to decline a little bit. Um, I, you know, we've got a great tourist uh, and and recreation industry here in Malawa County, but we are really far away. Uh, we're far from Portland. We're far from Boise. Um, so so people have to they have to want to come out, and and of course it's the the tourism is also very seasonal. So we're like any rural area in the country where we sort of struggle to have living wage jobs, um, have development, and. And that continues, but there's a lot of really innovative people here, and um, that that's always been the case, and it continues to be the case that are that are trying to do new things and come up with new industries, and um, yeah. I would imagine that, uh, in addition to the distance from a major city, the climate pay, climate pays uh, plays a big part in that. Where the winters are are pretty rough there, are they not? They, uh, they are, I mean, I guess I don't know anything different, but we do sort of joke that, uh, when people come out during the summer, everybody is just like, I can't, I want to live here. I can't, I would love to live here. We have to figure out a way to, to come. And then, um, they last the first winter and they, <laughs> it's all over. So, so it is, it, it is a contrast. Um, but yeah. Well, I would think that in terms of uh, you know, it would be a good market for for uh, sunbirds and and retired people who can come who have the resources to have a place there in the summer and 
just get lost in the winter, I suppose. But um, it is absolutely beautiful. I have never been there in the winter, but I've been out there and in halfway a lot in the summer. And uh, it's pretty incredible. And I think part of the nice thing is that you don't have a ton of people. That's one of the things I love about where I live is, you know, yesterday I was on the beach on a Tuesday, a sunny Tuesday, and barely anybody was there. So that's that's the positive is you, if you can... Uh, you, you can enjoy um, that as well. But so, how busy are you in the winter with with the ranch? Is, does it slow down? And the other the other ranches and other areas are helping to round it out for you and balance things. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, it's definitely the work changes a lot on the ranch side based on on the time of the year. Um, this time of year, we're doing a lot more planning, fixing things, um, putting the corrals back together, all the things that you don't even have a moment to do during the growing season. We're trying to catch up on, on some of those things, really working on our budgets, um, our goals. It's a little more of the paperwork, catch up, feeding cows hay, um, making sure the ice is chopped, everybody has water, everybody's healthy, um, and then on the, so, so it's actually what I have is two separate businesses and my family ranch is its own entity that's separate from Carmen Ranch Provisions, which we call the meat company. And Carmen Ranch Provisions is the entity that aggregates the different producers and supplies cattle into, into the Portland market. So it's, it's a little confusing, but when people are participating in our cow share program, they're always buying directly from my family ranch and from from just that single location. But everything else that we do is one of these 10 producers that work together. And um, so so that entity is sort of my day job. And it's, you know, we're going, we're going all the time. So we're always talking to chefs, to our distributor, to other buyers, to our producers, to the processing plant, um, and just managing the movement of the boxes of meat so that we can keep everything going. And how many, uh, among the 10 producers, how many head of cattle uh, are you talking about? What they own collectively is thousands. I don't know, I've never actually added up the, call it the mother cow herd, but we process 2500 a year uh, on average. And, and I, I think I asked before, but where does that stand relative to the Pacific Northwest and, and some other producers as well? Tiny. I mean, uh, if you think about the beef industry as being one of the most concentrated industries in the country, um, we're like microscopic might be <laughs> like really 2500 right 2, head is microscopic but it allows you to do some wonderful things that the larger producers can't do so yeah we can be pretty pretty flexible and responsive we can be very transparent we can tell every every box is associated with an individual producer that um, can tell you where the cattle were born and raised and what they ate we do nutrition testing on all of our different producers and the finishing diet. Um, obviously, we talked about already, we have soil tests and farm plans. 
So there's a lot that goes into the sort of integrity of, of the beef that we're offering, and we keep pushing to improve that. Um, so it, we're, we're sort of unique in that regard. We're very far from a commodity. So what parts, you know, you talked about uh, two different arms of your business. What is it that you enjoy most, and, and then what do you enjoy least about what you do? Um, I love being on the ranch. That's why I started the business in the first place. I love Willowa County. Um, This community is just an incredible place to live. I grew up here. I'm raising my kids here. And it's really, it's a special place. So I've always felt like to the degree that I can create business opportunities in this area that are positive for us. Um, that's something that I'd like to do. So first and foremost, I love just being outside here. I love the animals that we work with, um, thinking about their needs and, and what type of lives we, we want to provide for them in exchange for them ultimately being food for us. And that relationship between the humans and the land, the humans and the livestock, the livestock and the land, I mean, that's those, those are my passions. I also love working with chefs. Um, It's fun to interact with customers. It's fun to think about the culinary. I mean, chefs and ranchers are amazingly similar in a a funny way in terms of, um, you know, producing something every day, making progress every day, uh, taking a lot of pride in in what they do, having a sort of physical work. And so uh, I love working with both ranchers and chefs in the culinary community. Um, the, the part that's hard about what we do is every week we have to sell every cut in the animal at a price that allows us to pay our producers what they need to survive. And when business shifts rapidly, when demand goes down unexpectedly, it is incredibly challenging to manage that. And um, that, that stress, that sort of background stress all the time as we're trying to react to, to changing demands, and it's, it's changing demands at retailers, at restaurants that, that then trickle down to us. So um, that's my least favorite part of the job. And I would imagine 2020 was your absolute least favorite year of all, trying to figure out how to deal with it absolutely plummeting demand uh but maybe not so much it took a little while for the restaurants to figure out to i hate to use the word pivot but figure out what they were going to do and then i would imagine that that things started uh, stabilizing a little bit you know we've always been about half retail and half food service and so yes it was absolutely devastating to see half of our business go away. And, and not just because obviously it, there was a, a huge impact on us, but it's like, these are our partners and to see them struggle, not know what they were going to do. And, you know, I'm not telling you anything to say that the, the face of restaurants in Portland has dramatically shifted over the last few years. And so to watch, have a front row seat of that, um, was kind of heart wrenching. And, uh, we were super fortunate. We, our, our retail business picked up a little bit. Our direct business picked up. I can't even tell you how we managed 
through it, but but we did. And I actually think that uh, in a funny way, we might be coming, we might be looking ahead to one of our harder years. And it's a little bit of a whiplash effect of the pandemic mm-hmm. in, in the sense that during the pandemic, when the plants were closing and uh, there was a lot of insecurity about beef availability and beef supply. I mean, there were all sorts of headlines to that effect. Um, and prices went up a lot. And, and so during those months, extended months, companies like Tyson, um, they made, and other packers made in the neighborhood of, call it $1,000, 800 to $1,000 a head on the cattle that were going through their programs. And during those times, we didn't raise our prices. Our production costs didn't go up. We didn't need to raise our prices, and, and so we didn't. And so our meat was actually really competitive in terms of as compared to commodity meat. And now things have shifted. So the cattle numbers, due to the drought, um, due to high production costs, the cattle numbers are the lowest. I think the last headline I saw in Capital Press said that the cow herd is the lowest it's been since 1960-something. So all of a sudden, we have a very low supply of cattle, and those same packers are losing money on every animal in order to keep beef prices low. Well, obviously, we don't have that. We don't have that flexibility. We can't lose money on every animal and and stay in business. So our meat will start to look high relative to commodity meat. Um, So in a strange way, it might be this. And of course, Tyson's have all those profits that they're sitting on that they've had over the last few years Mm -hmm. to to help insulate that change. So this might be this might be a, a more challenging year than 2020 to some degree. Did you see 2022 as something that was encouraging for you in terms of, you know, your restaurant partners? Things, as you mentioned, changed a lot all over the country. But for those of us who are living around the Portland area, we can see it. Um, uh, but, you know, slowly but surely, we're see- I'm seeing in the last couple of weeks, Ava Jean's opening, reopening, yep. and other restaurants that are just reopening. Yep. Um, and so they're kind of taking the masks off. I don't know if they are in the restaurant, but I mean, figuratively, we're taking the mask off and just trying to get back to where we were. Are you encouraged by that? Or are you just coming to grips with the changing market? And you're dealing with different people. I mean, you have, I'm sure you have some chefs and restaurateurs that you've been dealing with for years that are... We're no longer clients, and now you have yep. to cultivate new ones. Um, but was 2022, I know you just talked about 2023 in front of us, but I'm just curious as to where you, if you feel things stabilized a little bit in the restaurant world, not necessarily in your world. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been fun to see restaurants come back very slowly. Um, some of those old guard are still hanging on, right? The uh, Greg and Gabby... Denton at Ox and Greg at Higgins, um, Urban Farmer has been a, a longtime great customer of ours. So some of the, I mean, we've got Laughing Planet, Tacovore. I mean, there are some some restaurants that have been with us almost since day one um, that navigated through it. And so that is 
really cool, and there are a lot that didn't. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been fun to see. I mean, I think restaurants will be forever changed, but it's been fun to see people figuring out how to come back, new places opening all the time, um, old relationships showing up in in new places like Doug Adams and his new project. So, and then yeah, altogether new chefs and seeing how creative they are and you know, piloting new business models. So it, it has been really fun, and I think it's going to continue to be fun to watch food service reinvent itself. You know, I think, I think um, just at first glance, and if you showed me a list, it would probably be easy to, to prove differently. But I think we're, we're at a time when, you know, chefs like Earl Ninsom and his restaurants that are, you know, Asian-focused um, are the king of the hill and there aren't necessarily the Paley's places anymore. And, you know, some of John's Gorham, John Gorham's restaurants are still operating, but under different management. Um, but the nature of what I think consumers want when they go out to eat is changing a little bit. And I, does that impact you? I mean, our, you know, we have our steakhouses for sure, and we have a lot of places that serve great food, but is, are people getting a little less traditional in their thinking? I guess that's what I'm getting at. And, um, and that, so that you have to be a little more creative because chefs are doing some things a little different, or chefs have different restaurants than they had before. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I don't know that I have a great answer. Um, I mean, I think about places like Campana, which is such a fun place to go and they serve a more traditional steak, but they do it in a kind of a less traditional way. And, and I would also say that, I, I mean, you know, Toki is a recent customer of ours and it's such a fun place to eat. And you're right. That's, that's a little less traditional. It's not Paley's place by any stretch. Um, but I think we've always been a great fit for some of those maybe more Asian-influenced or more um, ethnic-influenced restaurants because our beef does really well in the smaller serving size. We've never been – people have certain expectations when there's a big 14-ounce steak on their plate. Um, they are accustomed to a – call it more – I'll use my word, which is bland <laughs> and, and – uh, tender experience and our animals move a lot more they have really nuanced and complex flavor profile but if people just want something easy that um, they sometimes don't know how to think about our our meat and some of the restaurants that have more ethnic traditions do a great job with our meat so in some ways and they also have smaller serving sizes, which helps from a cost standpoint because we can deliver a lot of flavor with our meat in a smaller serving size. So um, to the degree that you're, you're right, we are shifting that direction a little bit. It actually works out for us. Yeah, I would think that would be... Uh uh, it's an interesting thought because I don't think necessarily, I mean, there are definitely people, one of our sponsors, Ringside, they're going to get a ribeye and they're going to order that. But on the other hand, I think a lot of people are going out and, you know, you've got 
some new Mexican places that are fantastic, and mm-hmm. they're serving it a little differently. So yeah, uh, and and we love both. I mean, to be clear, I actually ate at John Goran's uh, new restaurant recently in Bend, Rancher Butcher Chef, and they had a a beautiful bone-in ribeye from us, uh, which was, you know, it was looked beautiful. It was great. So uh, Urban Farmer still puts the grass-fed steaks out there, and they do a phenomenal job. So we we love it all. Um, I'm glad you got down there. I had the opportunity to go down to Bend as well. John, John and Renee's and Garrett's new restaurant. It's just awesome. I know. So, yep. It was super so. fun to see them all. All right, Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Right. For over, it says on their website, over 78 years. I'm thinking we're getting close to 80. It might be over 79 years for Ringside Steakhouse. There are very few restaurants. I can only think of a couple in Portland that can claim that banner, having been here through thick and thin for many years. Ringside is, of course, a, um, a hallmark when it comes for occasions, business meetings, or even uh, if you're just looking for great service and a great night out. It's ringside. And of course, you can't go wrong on Monday nights with their three-course prime rib dinner. Um, that includes, obviously, uh, the best prime rib in town. And also, of course, you get uh, you know other things that go along with it, which includes that creme brulee for dessert. Right. And I think their Yorkshire pudding, which is fantastic as well. Oh, yeah. I'm going to suggest that if anybody hasn't had enjoyed Wagyu steak, they check out Ringside and look at their offerings there. Um, yes, it's a premium experience, but it's well worth it if you're a steak lover and want to try something out of the ordinary. Ringside does uh, a fantastic job sourcing their Wagyu beef from Japan. And speaking of out, Chris, we should point out that uh, may- maybe one of the great things that might have come from the pandemic is that takeout is still available at Ringside Steakhouse, something that wasn't available before the pandemic. Right. You can order it up to an hour ahead of time, up until 9 p.m. You just uh, go to the Ringside's website, order a fantastic meal to enjoy at home. It'll be better than whatever you have planned and pick it up an hour later. And on the website, Chris, we should also point out that's where you can make reservations or make those reservations through the Open Table app. How often do you get to go to Portland and do you have some favorite places there that uh, you make sure? Outside, I, I mean, I sure, I'm sure you have to visit some from a business standpoint. You, you, know, you need to go visit your clients, but are there, some, are there some that are your favorites that stand out to you? And I'll, give, I'll, I'll say the disclaimer for you that you may not necessarily be able to mention every single one of your customers when you answer this question. Um, but are there some places that you, would, that you would tell friends they have to go? Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've actually we've covered a lot of them. Um, and I'm thinking also of the ones that I love that are no longer around, but we've, yeah. we've, we've covered a lot of them. I mean, it's hard to, the, the old guard, certainly the, um, Ox urban farmer Higgins, right. Those, they've just been customers for so long. 
And, and those are, you know, in a world where we're always looking for the next shiny thing in Portland, and it's, you know, that, that happens now. It's happening increasingly. We went a few years when that wasn't happening. I mean, the places like Higgins and, and Ox and, um, yeah, you mentioned Urban Farmer. They've been doing what they've been doing very well, and they, they went through some very tough times, and they're still hanging in. And, unfortunately, it's harder for them to get press for people to for the light bulb to go off and say oh we should go there um and uh you know even the laurel of the world and the ringsides all those places i mean ringsides been around for 78 years and um you know i think it's a place that uh that anybody visiting if they're into if they're into meat it's a good idea you know you've got el gaucho there are lots of them so they've been around for a long time and uh I always lament the fact that it that some of the newer folks that are less proven can get you know restaurant of the year. Um, you know, you look back; they may have been worthy, but for any place like years ago, Renata, after they were open a week, restaurant of the year. That to me is um, I just always had a little bit of a issue with that. But on the other hand, it's fun to have these best of lists as well. So I think that's yeah. that's part of it as well. Yeah. So, do, are there any? Uh, so, you were able to go to John's restaurant. Are there any restaurants in Portland that you really miss? I know I've got my list. I, I think my list of restaurants that I miss is larger than the, rest, <laughs> the restaurants nowadays that I that I think about. I want to go to that I think I want to go to, but I think that's a function of my age as well, <laughs> and my and my proximity to Portland too. Yeah, I mean, certainly Naomi. Uh, Pomeroy, I'm not being able to go. She's, she had so many cool iterations of, of what she did. Um, Brasa Haya. Oh my gosh. I love that place. That was a, an unbelievable restaurant and, and I miss those guys. I never got to go that one. So, um, so as long as we're on this track, if you don't mind, and I, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but do you have some favorites out your way when people are visiting uh, spots that uh, people would like to go to eat? I know I get asked quite a bit when people are going out there, and I don't necessarily have a great list of restaurants uh, that people want, might want to visit when they're visiting Ulawa County. Uh, that is a great question. Um, you mentioned... Uh, Ava Jean's opening back up and I believe Ross is involved in that and they used to have a really great place out here uh, it's called the Gold Room so we miss them a lot <laughs> and uh, in terms of other places you know there's just a there's a handful of local places uh, my kids and I like to go to the Range Rider they have a grass fed burger from my friends at Six Ranch Mm-hmm. That is kind of one of our weeknight staples. Um, but yeah, other than that, there's a couple Mexican restaurants that are great. Um, Joseph has a handful of, of little restaurants. All right. I, can, I always have a hard time identifying that. It doesn't matter. You know what? When you're out in that area, you're just enjoying nature. And maybe food should, food could be the focus, but... 
Um, you know, it's hard for a restaurant to sustain out there. You're right. Yeah. You know, you've had some nice restaurants that they tried and it was very difficult. So, um, well, and there's it, the, you know, I think there's some great models too. So Valley's at the lake. I mean, that's a multi-generation business that has a pre-fee menu and it's hard to get reservations, but it's always fun. So I think that, you know, if people are making their travel reservations in advance, that's always one to add to your list because those guys have so much, so much character. Um, oh, good. Well, not too far away. I used to uh, go up to the Rimrock and I always found that fun. They had a nice little dinner out on their deck. Yeah. And I understand that's closed again. Uh, I think the third owner since I've known them. It's that's it's, talk about a tough business model when you only have about six to six weeks a year to operate that one yeah. that one's pretty tough yep so um let's uh i appreciate your time Corey, this morning let's just tell people how they can get on your portland delivery program and drive them to your website to order the product and where else they might be able to get it i understand that you have a relationship uh not with zoopans but at another of uh, Portland's markets where they have a number of locations where they can find your beef, um, correct? And then also on your website as well. So um, you're available in Portland in a couple of different ways, but I think one of the cool ways would be to get delivery. I noticed a lot of zip codes where you offer delivery every couple of weeks and then uh, you can pick up in Southeast Portland as well. Yeah, we have a, a cute little space in Southeast that we share with some other cheesemakers, and um, and it's in part of the Red, which is a EcoTrust project. So we have some cold storage there, and we we operate our direct to consumer business out of that location. And we um, every a couple times a month we do either home delivery, and you're right, in a lot of different zip codes with a minimum order or, or pick up at our location. So it's a great way. We try to run specials um, every month. And we've just got good cuts. We try to make it really affordable. People end up trying to stock up um, and so they can have stuff in their freezer and have flexible options for dinner. Um, join our our e-newsletter, Ellen, um, who is a, a long-time food, Ellen Jackson, a long-time food presence in, in Portland, sends recipes and cooking suggestions out, highlights different cuts. So it's a, not a lot of people know about us, but it's a fun, fun group of people and a fun way to get really high-quality meat. Well, I think if you've got great chefs ordering your product, that's an endorsement unto itself. That's how I've operated Portland Food Adventures. If the chefs are going there and they're doing it, then you want to do that too. So the place to find that would be CarmenRanch.com, and that's spelled C-A-R-M-A-N. And I think most people know how to spell ranch. And it's, it's one word. So uh, there's lots there to check out. And, um, and I really appreciate your taking the time, Corey, this morning. I know you weren't feeling, you were a little under the weather yesterday, maybe a little better today. And I hope way better tomorrow. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate yours. Uh, it's been great spending an hour with you. We will uh, hopefully see you soon and be, uh, be enjoying the fruits of your labors as well. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks. 
Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right